Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed Himself through Scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant Word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. If you will open your Bible with me to Acts chapter 17. Oh, what a great passage of Scripture we're going to be looking at together today. And I would just say at the very outset, as we Jonas read this passage of Scripture, this incredible message that the Apostle Paul brings uh, in Athens at Mars Hill. Just keep in mind as we're going through this passage of Scripture that nowhere do we see an indication that there was a church immediately planted as the results of Paul's presence in Athens. Now we know that later on, There was a church there. But we don't see anything direct that happened there. Athens, what an amazing place. Uh, I was thinking, I should have the presence of mind to see if I couldn't find one of our uh, pictures when we went to the Holy Land back in the last century. By God's grace, we'll get to go to the Holy Land again. That would be good. But we flew through Athens Never left the airport, but that was back in the days when you had to deplane on the tarmac. And we were in awe and wonder. We were the tourists. And yeah, it was about at that point that Janice backed into an M16 that one of the soldiers had, and it was kind of like an oops moment. What a magnificent city. I appreciated what F.F. Bruce says. He said, No city in the Hellenistic world could match Athens for those qualities which the Greeks held most glorious. By the way, are our slides going to work? They are. They should be up right now. So I don't stress out wondering if they're working or not. I found this awesome picture of Athens. So maybe they're not working. Well, moving right along. They were up there. Okay. Man, there's this great picture. I'll try to figure it out. Well, Athens, we know, is the cradle of democracy. Now, you understand in this country, we do not have a a democracy. We have a republic. And there's a difference. And I won't give you uh, a history lesson today or anything like that, other than to say a pure democracy is best described as two wolves and a lamb having a popular election over what's for lunch. You should be thankful we have a republic. One of the famous uh, famous lines is that when they came out, a lady asked Benjamin Franklin, what do we have? Do we have a monarchy? What do we have? He said, Madam, we have a republic if you can keep it. So much for your civics lesson for today. Athens and all of Greece were... uh, conquered by the Romans in about 146 B.C. Interesting thing, 
that the Romans did, and we talked a little bit about this uh, in terms of Thessalonica a couple of weeks ago, but also in Athens, uh, the Romans considered the city to have such a glorious past uh, that it permitted them to carry on their own institutions and pretty much operate as a free and allied city within the empire. The reality is by this point, even though this is the cradle of, of philosophy and democracy, the home of people like Plato and Socrates and some of these others who uh, many of us had to endure reading their literature in high school and in college, uh, Athens is not the greatest city in Greece at this point. Pastor John shared something last week, and he talked about the wisdom of God in how the Greek language is the most precise language that the world has ever developed. Interesting thing to me, when you think about our Bible, the Old Testament was Hebrew. Hebrew which has now been revived and is the national language of Israel, Hebrew is the most picturesque language that humanity has ever developed. Greek, on the other hand, is the most precise. The wisdom of God that the Old Testament should be in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek, but also in the sovereignty of God, something I shared with Pastor John last week, when you think about Rome being conquered by uh, conquering the known world. The Romans brought to us as no other civilization had communications and roads and extensive transportation network which was absolutely critical and vital for the spreading of the gospel. And there are times that you know we sometimes look at things and we say what's going on in our world? We're gonna see a powerful declaration about what God says through Paul about the nations because our God is in total control. Now, what Paul is doing in Athens, he is confronting both the culture and the cultural elites and the intellectuals of that day. And I tell you, as I was reading through this, as I've been preparing this for the last couple of weeks, it. I thought, my, the old saying is true. The more things change, the more things stay the same. We hear some of the same things being said today. If you go out on that vast wasteland of knowledge called Facebook, you will constantly be seeing people saying things. Christians are anti-science. They're anti-intellectual. May I say to us that the opposite is actually true. That science was birthed through Christian men, men like Isaac Newton, who was a believer and a seeker after of God. Now that's a whole other message. But, but you see that, and, it, and you hear today, Christians are anti-intellectuals. They're anti-science. I have to tell you, I thank God for some of the brilliant apologists that we have today. Men like Ravi Zacharias, who has forgotten more than I've ever learned in my life. And if you want to be inspired, listen to a Ravi Zacharias. His, his podcasts are, are out there. They are brilliant. Well, to give us this cultural setting, because we will not understand this passage of Scripture if we don't understand the cultural setting of people and what Paul was speaking to. 
He's standing in the Orgaga, or, which is the Oraga. I didn't say that right. It's the marketplace. It's at the foot of the Acropolis, which is still standing. If you go to, and the Parthenon, if you go to Greece, you can see that. And I don't know, well, it disappeared up there. But it was up there, hallelujah. It was the meeting place. People came to the marketplace, and they were there to get the latest news. They didn't have social media. That was the social media. And it was there that the Epicureans and the Stoics and they came to exchange ideas. And we read in the scripture that their whole purpose was to come there and to exchange ideas. Now we'll say more about that in a moment. So Paul's basically addressing these two groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans believed in happiness and pleasure. Those are the true two primary goals in life. In fact, there are Epicurean societies yet today. And it's all about pleasure. It's all about, a lot of it is about food. And I, and I could go into some gross things that they do. They eat the food, they taste the food, they gorge themselves, and then they <clears throat> relieve themselves so they can do it again all on the same night. They're stupid, but... <laughs> The Epicureans believed everything happened by chance. Have you heard people say, well, it's karma? Everything happens by chance. It's amazing. The more things change, the more they stay the same. We hear the same philosophies, but it's just coming in a little different packaging today. Everything happens by chance. The gods are distant. Now, they're talking about the Greek gods. And I would just point out to you, if you have your Bible open, notice that many times when it's the reference to the Greek gods, it's the small letter G. Where Paul speaks, it's the capital letter G. Can I encourage us, when we read our Bible, take a little extra time, because let's be honest. Most of us, you know, we got to get our chapter in, our Bible reading, so we can go through the day without feeling guilty. Amen? I'm the only one who's ever done that, right? Okay, there's two, just Greg and me, okay. And we just zip right on through that chapter so we can conquer it. And okay, say, yes, now I can feel good about myself. I read my Bible today. Hallelujah, God, don't you love me a lot? Yeah, he does. He still does. Didn't matter whether I got through my Bible or not. Uh, although that, I need to do that. But we don't take the time to just stop and look and think. Can I encourage you, stop, look, and think. You read through a passage of scripture, think about who's he talking to? What is their worldview? What's their frame of reference? For the Epicureans, everything happened by chance. The gods are distant. They're really not involved in our lives. So their whole lifestyle is just summed up in the words, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we're going to die. Enjoy life. Have your best life now. It's the good life. We still see that today. And then there are Stoics. If we say someone is Stoic, we used to play this ridiculous game as kids. And we'd say, 
The Quaker meeting has now begun. Any of you play this? Okay, it's just Kelly and I are that old enough to remember this. The Quaker meeting has now begun. No more laughing, no more fun, no more chewing bubble gum. Now see, you all lost because you laughed. The point was not to laugh. We are very stoic. Oh, hallelujah. God is good. It's so exciting to serve Jesus. You don't need to tell anybody that you love God. They can see by all the joy in your life. I got to tell you, growing up in church, I mean, it was almost like a mortal sin to laugh in church. It's serious. And it is serious. But we forgot about the scripture that says that the joy of the Lord is also our strength. Amen? Nehemiah 8.10. But oh, so serious. You know, the stoicism. And what the stoics really believe is that all of life is determined by the gods. We have no control. Life is to be lived by the natural laws, completely free of emotional involvement. And it isn't it interesting how people are. They go for either to one extreme or the other. You're either the extreme. Live life. Enjoy life. Party now because you're going to die and you're going to become worm food. The other side is, oh, life is so serious. We've just got to be sober. And we just have no control over our lives. No middle ground. So for the Stoics, their lifestyle was about moral earnestness, a high sense of duty. And of course, that's all in the context of living it by nature. Can you understand why in verse 18 then, Paul's preaching about Jesus they just couldn't understand that. And then you begin to talk about the resurrection of the dead. And you have to understand that both for the Epicureans and the Stoics, why in the world would anybody want to be resurrected from the dead? You know, they weren't part of that other Eastern religion that says, you know what? You don't live a good life now, you're going to come back as a rat or something until you'll just keep being reincarnated until you get it right. So what's the response? You know, verse 18, they cannot understand this man. In fact, they called him, and this is backing up a little bit to last week, where they said, what does this babbler wish to say? I discovered a, an interesting comment, a note by Dr. Lloyd Ogilvie, uh, as he talked about the word babbler. It literally meant seed picker. It came from uh, Athenian slang, and it was a slang for birds that would flutter around the marketplace and pick up seeds. It's kind of like in the streets of Topeka. Have you noticed the birds that flutter around and pick up seeds off the street? 
It's a good thing birds don't have a sense of smell, at least I don't think they do, because of the place that they're finding the seeds. If you don't understand, I'll tell you later. <laughs> and, and what the Athenians meant here, as they're calling Paul this babbler, what they mean is, as someone who picks up bits of information but clearly lacks the intellectual ability to develop ideas on their own and once they get ideas they don't know what in the world to do with it. Now we have the advantage of looking back generations but the brilliance of Paul, oh my goodness, nothing could have been more degrading or insulting to Paul and his intellectual abilities and his intellectual integrity than this. Unless it was to go on and say, as they did, he was a preacher of foreign deities. Now let's look at his message. Verse 22. He speaks to the men of Athens. Now we're going to see at the end of this that there is a lady who, is spoken, who, who becomes a believer. And, and I just want to say that one of the things that we hear today is that Christianity puts down women. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, when you look at the history of Christianity, women have always been raised and elevated to a higher position. Three things have always followed Christianity. The first is the role and the place of women. Second, education. And third has come economic blessing and prosperity. Paul addresses these men of Athens and says, I perceive that you're very religious. It's interesting, the Amplified Translation of the Bible says that you are most religious, very reverent to demons. I'm sure that went over well. Verse 23, Paul picks up on the culture and the mindset that says, I see you have this altar to the unknown, unknown God. You remember a number of weeks ago when, when we talked about how the, 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 uh, the one city called Paul and Silas Greek gods? Remember that? And they did that because isn't this Hermes and Zeus and Hermes? And it goes back to the Greek legend of when these Greek gods came and they were not properly received. And as a result, devastation and destruction came to that Greek city. So when Paul and his group comes, they thought, we're not going to make that mistake again that happened before because we know the legend well. So here you are in the cultural context, just in case there's a God out there that we don't know about, we don't want to make him mad because who knows what he might do to us if he feels left out and forgotten. So they do this thing, this altar to the unknown God. Here's an important thing to, to understand about world religions, and it was not in my notes or in my intent to go into this, but it's very important. All other world religions have an angry God that you're constantly concerned about not offending lest he bring judgment on you. It's only Christianity it's only in the worship of Jesus that we have a God of love who so loved the world that he gave. All other religions, their offerings are to appease God. 
We love God. Why? What does the Bible say? Because what? Say it. He first loved us. Our worship does not arise to appease God, to keep him off of our back, or keep him from judging us. We worship him because of who he is and because of his character and the love that he constantly has poured out upon us that is seen through the Lord Jesus Christ. that makes sense? Boy, you're quiet this morning. Okay, hallelujah, I feel better. So just in case... We've missed a God, we're going to put one to the unknown God. Paul picks up on that, and he uses that metaphor powerly, and he begins to tell the intellectuals, the philosophers, who are the Epicureans and the Stoics, about that unknown God. Paul says, I want to tell you about him, because I serve him. He is, and look at what he says in verse 22. Uh, no, I'm in the wrong place, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Look at what he says to them in uh, verse 24. He's the creator God of the universe. The God who made the world and everything in it. Being the Lord of heaven and on earth. He doesn't live in temples, Paul goes on to say, that are made by human hands. He's not like your Greek gods and goddesses. He's different. He's eternal. He's divine. By his grace, he is the one that men seek because he is the one who's searching for a people. Can you begin to see the difference? If we had the time this morning, it would be profitable to just compare the religions of Greece and the gods of Greece with the Lord God, Jehovah, the creator God of the universe, and the Lord Jesus Christ, because they are total opposites from what the Greeks said. Verse 26 is a significant verse, both for them, but also for us today. Verse 26 says that he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined, catch this, having determined and allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places. You see, all humanity came from one man. We know that man is Adam, created out of the dust of the earth, created in the image of God. God is orchestrating, Paul says here, he is orchestrating all of human history. I remember a Sunday school teacher going to the blackboard in our classroom and putting the word history on the blackboard and then underneath it writing his story. Oh, young people, listen to me. Don't miss this. When you study history in school, remember, it's his story. God is in control. Paul says he determines the boundaries of nations. He determines as nations will rise and fall. Now you understand, for the Greeks, that meant a whole lot because their national hero was this 28-year-old young man, the son of Philip II of Macedonia. His name is Alexander the Great, who conquered all the known world and at the age of 28 sits down and cries because there are no more worlds to conquer. 
And they have seen their nation of Greece devastated, overrun, and now ruled by the Romans. And Paul is saying to these philosophers, these intellectuals, listen, it is the creator God of the universe, the God that I worship, the God that I serve, the God that I obey, who orchestrates all of history and all of humanity because it is all his story. You see, when you understand that, suddenly this passage of Scripture begins to take on all new meaning. Now, you've got to understand, the Epicureans would have not liked what Paul was saying. Stoics would have liked it because Stoics said that the, the gods control everything. The Epicureans wouldn't have liked it because they thought the God, their gods were up there, out there somewhere, and they were just back and distant. But neither group would have liked the inference of what Paul is saying because he's talking about the creator God of the universe, not their mythical gods. Today we talk about Greek mythology, but it was not mythology when Paul spoke these words in Acts 17. It's what they believed. It was what they practiced. Now look at verse 28. I mean, he's just said God's determined all of this, that people should seek him and find him. And then he says, and yet he's actually not very far off. We read through these verses, and if you don't stop and think about it, there's things that you're just going to miss here. Because in verse 28, Paul's classical training and education, his training on a, on a world view. Now remember, little, just where, where was Paul raised? Was he raised in Jerusalem? Say no. We know him as Saul of what? Begins with T. Tarsus. So Paul has both the Jewish education, and we know that from a Jewish standpoint, he was taught, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, <coughs> who was the foremost rabbinical scholar of his day. And in those days, it wasn't like today where colleges, you decide young people, okay, I graduated from high school, I'm going to go to college, and you decide where you're going to go. In those days, you didn't decide who your teacher was going to be. Your teacher chose you. So it was a whole different context. So here's Paul raised in Tarsus, and he is also a product of the training of Gamaliel, the foremost rabbinical scholar of his day, but having been raised in Tarsus, which is not in Israel, he has a world-class education, if you please, to where he is exposed and taught the writings of the Greek philosophers, the Plato's, the Socrates, the Aristotle's. And what he does in verse 28 is just absolutely brilliant because he, he quotes, actually, two of their poets. Now, I don't expect you to remember this. There's not going to be a test afterwards to see if you've got all of this. But when he uses that phrase, in him we live and move and have our being, it's actually coming out of a poem where this guy, Minos, addresses his father Zeus. And then that phrase that says we are indeed his offspring comes from 
a guy by the name of Epimedes, who was a Cretan. The point is, Paul knew his literature, and because he had this education, he was going to be able to draw from that to make application in a pagan cultural setting. Young people especially, listen to me. Nothing in your education will ever be wasted if you are under and submitted to the will of God in your life. He will use everything. And here, total secular things coming out of Greek literature. Holy Spirit is able to inspire Paul and use that and build a bridge to communicate the gospel in a pagan culture. Oh, young people, hear me well in your education, whether it's high school, whether it's college, whether it's in a trade school, God's going to use that in your life for his glory, for the kingdom, if you'll just let him. That wasn't in my notes either. I love following the logic here in, in verse 29. It's almost like Paul has gone through this logical progression. He said, I want to tell you about the God I worship. You call him the unknown God. He's the creator God of the universe. Out of one man, he created every, every human being. He holds all of life, all the nations. They rise and they fall according to the times that he has fixed. Now, therefore... Because, you see, we have this common heritage. Because we're God's offspring. Look at what he says in verse 29. We ought to not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or formed by the art or the imagination of man. Hmm. We serve the God, sovereign God of creator of the universe, and he's not like your Greek gods. Stop thinking of God's divinity as being like gold or silver or the image or the form that some artist or the imagination has created. I love Paul's logical progression here. And then he says this amazing thing, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked. Now think about this. He's talking to the intellectuals here. He's talking to the foremost philosophers in the known world. You know, this is not a conversation that's taking place at Crossroads Cafe in beautiful downtown Topeka. Yes, he's in the marketplace, but he's addressing the intellectuals, the most brilliant minds in the world. And he says, hey boys, in the days of ignorance, God overlooked all of that. He overlooked your ignorance that you thought you would just represent God by gold and silver or stone. But now, I love that, but now he has commanded all people everywhere to repent. And you notice how things have changed. I mean, he's built this logical argument, and he said, God overlooked your ignorance, but now, today, things have changed. And he commands people to repent. 
I remember being in some meetings with the late Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole. I'll tell you, from my church background, it, it kind of shook me up because he would literally get in a man's face and, I'm not picking on you, Ashton, but I am. Repent! You repent! So different from, I was raised in church. Now, if you feel Jesus moving on your heart, maybe your heart's just kind of beating a little faster. Now, I'm, I'm making a joke to illustrate a point, okay? It wasn't quite that dramatic. Oh, if you feel Jesus moving on your heart, then you might consider, think about this, uh, and give your heart to Jesus. No, Paul says, look, here's what God did. Here's who he is. He created the world, the universe. In him we live and move and have our being. Without him, we're nothing. You repent. How many of you know that would not go over well in most segments of North American culture? That's why most of our culture really reacts and rebels against true Christianity because it, it confronts our culture and our lifestyles and demands that we make a decision. And if we say, well, I'll think about it. I don't want to decide today. The truth is we've made a decision. You see, the gospel confronts us that there is no middle ground. It is either yes or it is no. There is no maybe. There is no sometime in the future when it comes to the claims of Christ. Now here's the clincher. Why does God command us? Why should people repent everywhere? Because, don't miss this, verse 31 he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Of this he has given us assurance all by raising him from the dead. Now you have to understand, Paul's got this brilliant logical mind. And he takes them through all of this. And God has done all of this. Now he commands this. And why is this an urgency for us? Because there is a day coming. God has fixed and he has determined it. We don't know exactly when it is. But it is coming. As sure as the world exists, he is coming again. And on that day, he will judge humanity. And how do we know all of this is true? Paul says, because he raised him from the dead. See, that's the clincher. Now we understand as Christians that if there is no resurrection from the dead, all we have is a social club and another world religion. That's why in all of the book of Acts, the central theme always comes back to the bodily resurrection of Christ. Without that, we have nothing. His sacrifice on the cross was meaningless without the resurrection and without the ascension to the Father. You see, you, this whole thing is linked back to verse 26. 
that God has appointed the nations for their rise and fall. We know this. What a glorious truth. Because God raises Jesus from the dead. Now look at verse 32. We're almost done here. Don't miss the irony. Because this is fantastic. If you look at verse 21, which was the first verse Jonas read to us, think about this. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. That's what their days were filled with. But now look at their reaction in verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and said, uh, and, but others said, we will hear you again on this. Now, don't miss this. Here's the irony that I think is just amazing. The whole concept of the resurrection of the body was just absurd to them, and it was undesirable to them. It was too new. It was too radical for their ears. The ears of people who came together for the sole purpose of hearing something new. Now, is it just me, or... Am I missing something? Because I think the irony there is incredible. Because they came together to hear something new, and when they heard it, they said, it's stupid, it's absurd. They mocked. It's outright ridicule. Others were more politically correct and more polite in their dismissal. Well, we'll hear you again. Well, maybe. They were at least nice. But here's the whole truth in this. These philosophers were no match for this brilliant, converted, Christ-filled Pharisee when it came to repentance, divine judgment, and the resurrection. Intellectually, experientially, he was so far beyond them. And then verse 33 concludes by saying that Paul leaves. He leaves the court at Mars Hill. And as I said, while the church in Athens does appear in later years, there's no record of one being established at this very time. It tells us of a couple of converts. Now, it doesn't mean that there wasn't a church established at that time. It's just that we don't know that there was. But some did believe. And again, we read these names and these titles, and sometimes they're difficult for us. Dionysus, the Areopagite. Man. Which simply meant he was a member of the Areopagus. Oh, well, that's great, isn't it? Well, it's especially great when you understand that that would have been equivalent to the Supreme Court of Athens. If we were to say Ruth Bader Ginsburg was in that meeting and heard the Apostle Paul and became a believer, 
that would be the context. You know who Ruth Bader Ginsburg is. I heard somebody say, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> no, you didn't say that. No. She's one of our Supreme Court justices. Put it in that context. You've got a Supreme Court judge who becomes a believer. We hear very little, if nothing, about him from that time on. However, tradition does say that he was martyred in Athens during the reign of the Roman emperor, uh, Domantane. And then there's Damaris. I read an interesting thing by F.F. F. Bruce. Now, I, somebody years ago, before we even started the church, he was a, a pastor, an associate pastor in Alden, New York, just out of Buffalo. He gave me this book by F.F. F. Bruce, Paul Apostle of the Heart Set Free. Now, I think you can still buy it. If you don't like scholarly writing, don't buy it. Because it's one of those you wade through. But F.F. F. Bruce was brilliant. And I loved what he said at this point. He said the fact that she is singled out, along with Dionysus, who's one of the court judges, may indicate that she was a woman of distinction. And I would say that's got to be absolutely true. Now, think about this. As the scripture began, Paul addresses the men of Athens. But it wasn't just the men, it was the people. That was a, a generic term for all who dwelt there. And I love the fact that women are recognized. You have women like Damaris. You have women like Lydia, the seller of purple in Thyatira. Because God loves his people and he has a purpose and a plan. So how does all of this fit together for us? The last thing in the world I want is for you to go away and say, well, that was interesting. Or to say, man, that was boring. I couldn't believe he just kept going on. I wondered when he was ever going to quit. What is it that we take out of this? And worship team, if you want to make your way forward, let me give us four applications. I think it's significant that we do not see initially a church being established here. We see a number of individuals who are recognized as believers. And you see, Paul's faithfulness demonstrates again that our job is to declare the truth. The results are up to God. We live in such a success-oriented society that it even comes into the church. And it's interesting, when you get together with pastors, I can always tell you the second question that comes up when they start talking about the church. How is the church? Question number one. Number two, guess what it is? How many people do you have? Because it's almost like we're taking spiritual scalps and success is determined in numbers, not 
in disciples. And we need to be reminded that we do not judge success by human terms. I think of Jeremiah the prophet, faithful man of God, preached. How many converts did Jeremiah have? Zero. In his whole life and ministry, not one person heard his ministry and received his ministry and was changed. Now, was Jeremiah a success or a failure? He was a success because he heard from God, spoke what God gave him, and it's faithfulness. It's God's job to change hearts, which leads to number two. Relying on logic and logical arguments, as masterful as those that Paul used, that doesn't succeed. You know, when it comes to logic, we can win the argument and lose the war. Because logic does not change the hearts and the lives of people. It's only the love of Christ. It's only the revelation of the truth of his word. Number three, I think one of the takeaways from this, and I want to reinforce something I said specifically to young people. Paul's brilliance, his use of the Greek literature, demonstrates that Christians are not anti-intellectual. They're not a bunch of ignorant, uneducated fools. But that God will use everything in our background, and it can become a tool for the gospel if we'll just let it. Finally, people may mock us. They may dismiss us dismiss us. One of my favorite people to be around is Chuck Cheeks. Used to teach in the Goshen school system. He was a baseball umpire. He could get away with things on a baseball field. I remember one occasion, and, and this all fits, so my little story here fits, okay? He's umpiring at home plate, and there's a collision at home plate, and he makes the call, and one of the coaches is really upset over the collision that has taken place at home plate. And Chuck's just standing there, and he goes, "Man, yeah, coach, you're right. That was a really, a, that was really a train wreck. He should have probably got out of the way." Every time I see Chuck, and I haven't seen him for a couple of months, but you'll see him, and he'll say the same thing. I, I'll say to him, Chuck, it's, it's good to see you. He says, oh, it's good to see you. He says, but you know what? I don't care if you remember me or not. Just don't forget my Jesus. Because you see, it's not about us. People may mock us. They may dismiss us. But that does not change the truth of who God is. It doesn't change the fact that God has fixed a day before the foundations of the world that we know was ever created when Jesus will come again and judge the living and the dead in righteousness. Therefore, we must live our lives in the light of that truth.
doesn't matter what people think about me. I want people to like me. I'm a nice person. But that doesn't change who God is. Heaven and earth may pass away, the Bible says, but my word will not pass away. I look at this passage of Scripture and I think, how amazing. Paul goes toe-to-toe with the intellectuals, the brilliant philosophers of his day, and they can't hold a candle to his wisdom. In fact, they don't get it because it goes over their head. But as brilliant as the logic is, it doesn't change hearts. Only God can do that. Now, we still need to use, and we need to get all the education we can get and all the education we need to do what God's called us to do. But it's God who's got to do it. And he's fixed today. He's coming again. And he will judge this world. Stand together and pray with me. Lord, what an amazing thing to look into this passage of Scripture. And Lord, the point is not that... (laughs) Look how Paul outdid the philosophers. That's not the point. The point is the truth of your word. And in spite of their brilliance, they were just covering their bases in case there was a God that they missed. And they truly did. But we see again, unless you open our eyes, logical arguments will never persuade us. How amazing. These people gathered for the sole purpose of hearing something new. And when they heard it, they wouldn't receive it. But there were those that did. And it's their names that are remembered. So God, would you you just take by your spirit and apply things to our hearts and lives. You know where each one of us are living. You know where we're walking. You know what we're going through. And you know, Holy Spirit, how different things in this passage of Scripture apply to us individually. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll bring that spirit of revelation to us. That we'll be able to see you for who you are in ways that we never knew before. Where we see your sovereign hand in spite of the fact that it seems like everything's falling apart in our world. You're still in control. Would you encourage our hearts that our job is to be faithful to share the message. And it's your job to change lives. And may we live our lives in the light of that truth. That in you we live and move and have our being. Be glorified in us, and then be glorified through us, we pray in Jesus' name.